someone count to make sure all the choir members that leave come back in the front doors. And... Again, I want to thank you for this great and wonderful opportunity to be the Barton Clinton Gordy Lecturer for this year. I want to say, uh, like Phil, a word of thanks to the committee. This is a first-class group who does a wonderful job, very hospitable, very warm, and very welcoming. They've done a great job making Chris and me feel very welcomed here. And I want to thank you for coming back. Um, it's one thing to draw a crowd because Dr. Biggs draws the crowd. It's another thing to have you come back. That's a, that's a better thing. I, Dr. Biggs would always introduce me when I would preach or the week before I would preach here. And, and when he got through, I'd always say, man, I've got to hear that guy because he's got to be really, really good. And then he would sit down and he would say, well, I can put you up to bat, but I can't hit the ball for you. Well, he, he put me up to bat, and I'm glad that you came back to hear me again. I'd like to again say a word of thanks for the musicians at this church. I hope that you never take for granted the kind of music that you have offered to you week after week after week here. I know the Panseras are gifted, talented folks among the best in the connection. I know Dr. Biggs brags on them quite a bit, and now I know why. They are wonderful. <laughs> we are grateful. And, and we, um, after the service today, I ran into Fred and Barbara Elder, and I just want to say what an important part Fred especially played in my growth in ministry. I've had wonderful relationships over the years with all of my music directors because I was trained well by Fred Elder, and I just want to thank him for spending the time teaching me the things that I needed to know. I'd like to read to you now from Paul's first letter to the churches in Corinth. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. But Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my lips the meditations of our hearts. Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was a rookie mistake. And it was all my fault. I just should have known better. After I left here as your intern, I went down to serve a church in Lone Grove, Oklahoma. And before long, we were embroiled in a great, deep, profound theological controversy. The controversy was, what color carpet are we going to put in the sanctuary? <laughs> now, you may laugh, 
But you can do almost anything in the church if you don't mess with the sanctuary. My congregation just raised $3 million to retire some debts, to do some remodeling. And when we were through, I said the easy part was raising $3 million. The hard part is the color scheme for the sanctuary. And that is true. But the problem was that I was a student, and so I turned this project over to the trustees. And one day I arrived in church on Sunday morning, and in the back of the church were two color samples. Church red and neutral beige. There was a little jar in the back and little slips of paper for people to vote. It was an ice storm that day, and only 30 people showed up to church. At the end of the service, I dumped out the ballots and counted, and you know the result, don't you? 15 to 15. The board chair turned to me and said, I guess, preacher, you're going to have to cast the deciding vote. Now, I was not that stupid. I said, we will vote again next Sunday. Beige won by a hair, and it was installed with a minimum of fussing and fighting. But it could have gone the other way. There are churches that fight over less than that. Controversies over some of the silliest, pettiest things you can imagine. And whenever that happens, it is inevitable that the preacher will, at some part in their soul, say, I wish I could be a pastor back in the good old days of the early church, where everybody loved each other, where there was no conflict, where they had a clear vision and purpose, where they were all about the work of the church and they did not concern themselves with such silly, petty things. And then I would read Corinthians and realize that the good old days are a lot like today. We really don't know the problem that Paul is addressing, although he seems to be a little upset at the tattling that is going on. Chloe's people wrote Paul to say that Apollo's people and Paul's people and Cephas's people and the people who said they were a part of Christ weren't getting along very well. And Paul writes them back this letter to help them understand what it means to be the church. Now, part of me is hurt by the fact that even in the earliest days of the church, there was conflict. But the bigger part of me is hopeful. It reminds me that the church has always been a human institution full of weak and frail people. But God used it anyway. So I want to talk a little bit about this letter tonight, not because there's conflict in the church, but because we need to hear what Paul has to say. We need to be reminded again and again and again why in the world we are here doing this thing week after week and day after day. Now, if you read through the letter, you will see that Paul understands that the church is under attack. But you need to be clear about where the attack is coming from. He was a well-known pastor 
in a downtown church. They built the Museum of Art across the street from his church, a wonderful addition to the downtown. He was contacted by the newspaper and interviewed about this wonderful addition to this area in which his church was and how it was going to bring people and energy and life to that part of downtown. And then they talked about the first sculpture that was to be exhibited. It was a sculpture by Rodin called The Gates of Hell. It was to be right there in front of the museum, right across the street from the church. And the writer asked him, he said, So what do you think about the gates of hell being across the street from the church? And he replied, The gates of hell have always been across the street from the church. But if you look at the Bible closely, you will see that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Because the church cannot be defeated from the outside. In fact, the church has been its strongest when it was most persecuted. Not largest, not most visible, but most faithful, most committed at those points in which it was most dangerously attacked from the outside. If you read Paul's letter closely, you will realize that the greatest danger to the church is never from the outside. It's always from within. It comes from those of us who fail to remember why we are here. She was a good family friend. Her name was Opal. Opal was the unofficial historian of my little town in Illinois. Anytime they needed a little article written for our weekly newspaper about the history of the community or some event, she would know and she would write the article. She was a member of my church. We had a little beautiful, little white frame building, lovely stained glass windows. The church in which I was baptized and confirmed and worshipped all the younger years of my life. But one day we got an engineering report telling us that soon the main level and the basement level were going to be one level. The timbers were rotting. The fall floor was falling, and something needed to be done. Well, the church got some bids and realized it was going to cost as much to fix it as it would to tear it down and start over. So they decided in this growing community to build a bigger sanctuary. And Opal left because she loved the windows and the floors smell and history, as did I. She went to another little town, another little white frame church, and soon it merged with another congregation, built a bigger building in an area that was growing, and she left there and stopped going anywhere because she loved the church. She did love the church, but she missed the point. She had forgotten why the church was there. The last three churches I've served have all been city center congregations. They've all been in cities that were growing at the margins. And all three churches faced a time of difficult decision making. Each of those congregations had to ask themselves, do we want to stay here? Or do we want to move to the edge of the city? Do we want to go where the people are? Build a big building and grow. 
I look back at the minutes of their meetings, and each of those minutes talked about the church debating over their windows, their plant, the sanctuary, and each of them decided to stay. And to each of those congregations, I said the same thing. I said, you guys have made the right decision for the wrong reason. If you believe that the church is a museum, you've missed the point. Now, I understand I'm on thin ice here, (laughs) speaking to a congregation in perhaps the most beautiful building in the Methodist Connection. But it is a tool, not an object of worship. It is here to inspire and to attract and to send out people in the name of God. Every generation needs to ask itself the same question. Why did God put us here? God put you, you, with your unique talents and abilities and skills and gifts here the heart of downtown Tulsa. God puts you here, I believe, to celebrate the great diversity that comes with people coming from all over the metropolitan area. Sixteen high schools, Dr. Biggs said, are represented in the youth group. God put you here to be in ministry to those who live in the shadow of your tower and who need your love and your care. God put you here to change this city from the inside out. That's a good reason for staying here. But if you fail to see it, then you will fail to be the church. Dr. Fred Craddock tells the story of the time he wanted his wife to see a lovely little church that he had served as a student pastor. He found it on the map, and he drove back into the middle of nowhere in Tennessee and came over the rise and found the building that was now a restaurant. He took her inside, and they had lunch together, and he began to ask around, how did this church become a restaurant? And somebody knew the store. They said, well, after you left, Dr. Craddock, they brought some industry to our county. They brought some factories. And with it, they brought some people that we really didn't want to be a part of our church. People who weren't our kind of people. So the board had a meeting. They debated it and they talked about it and they came up with this decision. They said, if you want to join this church, you have to own property in the county. And it worked. Right up until the last property-owning member died. And the restaurant company bought it. And Dr. Craddock said, it's a good thing it became a restaurant so all these people can come inside. We have been put here to be in ministry, to be in mission, 
to reach out to those who need to know the love of God. One of my favorite stories, I've told it many times over my life, it it happened back when I was working at Mountaintop, the Tennessee Outreach Project. I, along with one other male counselor, were given the job of finding projects for young people, junior high and senior high kids, to work on during the week. So we traveled around in the mountains trying to get these people to let these high school, junior high kids come to their home. We were downtown one day, and a fellow stopped us. He knew who we were, and he said, I've got a brother by the name of Noe Grayson that could use an outhouse. You'd have called him Noah, but in Tennessee he was Noe. He gave us directions. We drove up to the top literally of Suck Mountain and found this dilapidated old shack with with a gate out front that was locked. We called out his name, Mr. Grayson, Mr. Grayson, no response. We honked the horn, no response. We got ready to leave. And then out of the front door came this tall, white-haired, overalled hillbilly. What do you want, he said. Well, we talked to your brother, and he said you could use an outhouse. We'd like to build one for you. He said, I don't need no outhouse. Get away. I got no money anyway. We said, well, sir, we're a Christian service project. We will pay for the project. We'd love to do this for you. Just to show you our love, would you let us do that? And he looked at us for a while, and he said, well, he said, I've been taken so many times in my life, I ain't got nothing left to give. You want to build me an outhouse, fine, but you ain't getting nothing from me. We set up a time the next Tuesday to show up, and the next Tuesday came. We had to honk the horn. He had to come out. We had to convince him who we were again, and we started to work. As I told you this morning, that was the hottest summer on record in Tennessee up to that point. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to dig a hole for an outhouse in the side of a mountain yourself, but it's not easy work. And between you and me, I suspect it did not pass the health code requirements. But we did the best we could. We dug all day, and no, we stayed in the house. The next day, we began to put the outhouse together. We had donated wood. That was the hardest wood I'd ever seen in my life. In fact, we had to dip each nail in motor oil to drive the nails through the wood. I half suspect Noe's shack isn't there anymore, but I guarantee the outhouse still stands at the top of Suck Mountain. Finally, about halfway through the day, Noe came out sat down on a stump, and a part of what we were to do was to connect with those folks we worked for. So I went over, and I said, Mr. Grayson, could I have a drink of water? He said, sure, come in. We went into his little shack. He had a refrigerator that looked like it was hot-wired. I, I don't quite know how that was working, but he opened it up. Inside, there was a half a jar of peanut butter, a watermelon, and a little bowl of water. He scooped me out some water and put it in a cup, handed it to me. While I was drinking it, he said, you're a preacher, ain't you? I hate it when they can just tell. I I said, well, I'm, I'm studying to be one. He said, I don't much care for the church. I said, why is that, Mr. Grayson? He said, because there's a beautiful church at the bottom of this mountain, and they don't care about us at all. We're hot in the summer, we're cold in the winter, we're hungry year-round, and all they care about is themselves. I said, Mr. Grayson, look out the window and tell me what you see. He said, I see a bunch of kids fooling around, building me an outhouse. I said, there's your church, Mr. Grayson. He thanked him for the water. 
close of the day, he came out carrying his watermelon, the only other thing he had besides peanut butter in his refrigerator. He said, I'd like to share this with you. And so he shared it with us, and we cajoled him into taking some action shots on his new outhouse. Don't think about that too much. I get distracted here. And when we got through, he said, Preacher, would you say a prayer? So we said a prayer. When I got through, he looked up with tears running down his face. He said to me, You've made a friend. Our job is to befriend those who need to know the love of God. Now, I know you say it, because I say it too. I've heard it over and over and over again in my life. I'm going to church. What time do you go to church? Let's go to church together. But that's wrong. You don't go to church. You are the church. You can go to a play, you can go to a movie, you can go to a restaurant, but wherever you are, you are the church. It's not something you go to. It's who you are and how you live. God has called us together to this place to befriend a hurting world. I was at one time the president of the Eau Claire Clergy Association, which sounds far more glamorous than it really is. It was one of those things where everybody looks down and I looked up and so I got elected. (laughs) We really only had two jobs. One was to start the meetings, which were then a free-for-all and really didn't matter who was in charge. And then... The other job was once a year, along with the physicians in town, we would host a joint clergy-physician workshop. The deal was the physicians got the speaker, and the president of the Eau Claire Clergy Association made the introduction. So it was my year to do the introduction. Never met the speaker. He was in a room outside the room where we were meeting. I was handed a sheet of paper and said, introduce this guy. Now, this was before the movie, and all I knew was where he went to college and where he worked, and then I introduced to the crowd Dr. Patch Adams, and out he came with gray braided hair to his waist and a neon fish shirt and tie and orange and brown slacks and a handlebar mustache, and he began to speak. About halfway through his speech, he literally dropped his his pants and had nothing on but boxer shorts until he put on his clown pants, turned around, put a clown nose on, turned back around in character, and was a clown. And then he told us. One of the highlights of his life every year is to take a group, I don't know what that's called, a troop or an alley, whatever, of clowns, to Russia to visit the orphanages. 
He said the year before he had gone to an orphanage in Russia, and there was a little girl there that he was trying to connect with, and one of the nurses came by and said, don't bother with her. She has shown no signs of communication. She has shown no signs of contact for three years. She simply ignores everybody. So he took that as a challenge. He just sat down beside her. Sat there for 30 minutes. She began to rock. So he began to rock in time with her. She noticed him and she turned to look and his nose was close and she hit it and it squeaked. She was startled and back to rock. He went back to rock. She looked again and touched it and squeaked. Half an hour later, she touched it again and then she sat on his lap and he hugged her close as they rocked back and forth. Church, our job is not to be judgmental and mean and harsh and vindictive. Our job is to gently and humbly and compassionately break into the silence and the darkness and the pain and the fears and the hurt of those around us with the love of God. I'm going to tell you this. You're going to have to think about it. You may not get it till after I leave town, which is what I'm hoping church is one of the very few institutions that does not exist primarily for its membership. Did you hear me? The church does not exist for those who are already members. The church exists for those who need to be invited in with humility, compassion, and love. Dr. Fred Craddock tells another story about his father. Dr. Craddock said, growing up, my father never went to church. My mother went every Sunday, but my father never went to church. Every time my mother asked my father to go to church, he'd say, I know what that church wants. They want one more member on the roll and one more pledge. One more member on the roll and one more pledge. That's all they want. Every year, a visiting preacher would come by, and every year he would eat at the Craddock's house. And the preacher would say to Mr. Craddock, I noticed you weren't at church today. And Fred said, I would cringe because I knew what he was going to say. If he said it once, he said it a thousand times. I know about you preachers. All you want is another member on the roll, another pledge. Another member on the roll, another pledge. Then he said, years later, received a phone call from my mother saying that my father was dying. He had throat cancer. He was unable to speak by the time I got there. I walked in and took his hand and sat with him for a while. And then he said, I noticed that every flat surface in his hospital room was covered with a plant or a flower. So I got up and began to look around. My father watched me. And then I noticed a, a stack of cards on the table next to my father's bed. And my father watched as I read every one of them, every plant. Every flower, every card, 
was given to my father, he said, from a member of my mother's church. Every single one. My father grabbed the Kleenex box with a little stub of a pencil stuck in the corner, pulled it out and wrote a note, quoting Shakespeare. He said, draw your fleeting breath to tell my story. Fred said, I asked my father, so what is your story? And he wrote, I was wrong. Thanks be to God. 